In today's episode of the Founders Lounge, my guest was Charlie Carpenter. He started several businesses in his life and the most successful one was acquired for tens of millions of pounds by Canon. That's obviously quite an imp impressive and interesting story, which we talk about quite extensively, how they started it, how they got acquired, how they then sold it one more time. So that was really interesting. Uh, we talk also about leadership and we talk about in how he, in his current role, he's also acquiring other businesses. So we talk about acquisitions, how they approach that. And uh, in the end, we also touch on side hustles. So besides his main business right now, he also has a few side hustles with his wife. Some of them are pretty successful. And I think that's really interesting to hear about as well. So I hope you're gonna enjoy it. And if you do, please leave us a review on Spotify, on YouTube, leave a comment, love to read those, and it really helps spreading the word and getting even more interesting guests on. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Good. Well, Charlie, welcome to the Founders Lounge. Well, thank you very much for having me. Cool, so I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about you, Charlie. Um, I, I don't know that much about you yet, so this is going to be a bit of a discovery episode where I, I try to learn more about who you are and we'll try to learn some things together. Um, so can we can we just start with, you know, what's who are you? <laughs> who am I? Okay, uh, my name is Charlie Carpenter. Um, I guess I am a sort of, I don't know if you'd call it a seasoned entrepreneur now, but I've been working and building my own businesses for, you know, ever since I left university. Um, you know, it's, it's funny when I started back at uni and I, I come from like an Asian family and my mom obviously wanted me to be either a doctor, a lawyer or an accountant. <laughs> so, um, so I studied accountancy at university um, and I didn't do very well at it. I have to say I very much enjoyed university. So, um, but it was from there I realized that, you know, maybe going down the sort of vocational sort of um, route wasn't necessarily for me and I always had this sort of need or want to be like my own boss so that's kind of like the motivation of kind of how I've got to here today was uh, anyone in your family entrepreneurial probably not from what you're saying my uncle was actually quite entrepreneurial uh -huh. so yeah so my uncle he also sort of followed a similar route so he went to university but he actually dropped out um, to look after my my gran, his mom, and he started a, a cleaning business. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, it was actually very successful. He had sort of national contracts with, you know, big, well-known supermarkets. Um, and he sort of semi-retired at a very young age of, I think he was like, maybe like 50. So quite young for him, um, which was good. So, you know, I learned a lot of stuff from him, which was great. And actually, my sister is very entrepreneurial. Um, she she started a business back in, she moved to Australia after she went traveling there in her 20s and started a recruitment business, which she ended up selling and it got acquired. I think it was about a year or so before I sold my recent business. Um, so there's two of us that have been relatively entrepreneurial and successful. We had a sort of race to see if we see how successful we could be before we were 35. Um, uh, and she, she sold a business when she was 36. So, uh, so, so I you win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's fun. Okay. Is so, so that's interesting. Um, do you, do you think that your uncle was then sort of the inspiration? Because it's interesting if I, if I compared it to my childhood, 
nobody was uh, you know nobody was entrepreneurial in my family not not parents not mm. uncles um so I just I would heard about I would hear about business people right and I would hear about people having businesses and certain lifestyle that came with that and certain success that came with that but I had absolutely no idea it's kind of ridiculous how I had absolutely no idea what that really means to start mm. a business it's now when I think about it it's kind of funny cuz I sort of thought like you just I don't know you just do something and people just happen to buy it and you're just kind of get lucky that you're like doing working on the right thing and now i think about business very very differently it's like very you know strategic and calculated and you're like very thoughtful about what you're what you start and what you work on um yeah so yeah, i'm curious what what introduced you then to... so i don't think it was my uncle was kind of like the first person who got me interested in it but they into actually executing it i would say but actually i think it was Probably the motivation came at a much younger age. Um, so like we grew up in a, a relatively poor area um, and we were relatively poor ourselves. So, you know, at a very young age, I don't, I'm sure you've had many of these types of stories. I was the kid who went to school and um, was like selling sweets out of my backpack so I could uh, make enough money to pay for lunch. Um, and you know, I got given a certain amount of pocket money at the beginning of the week, probably wouldn't stretch the entire week with the amount that I ate. So I was like, okay, I need to double this if not. So I figured it out that actually you could sell sweets, buy, buy sweets with your pocket money, and then you could double your money every day. Mm -hmm. Um, which is what I did. Um, and I did that throughout school, um, which was probably like my first sort of entrepreneurial sort of thing that I did. And I think from there, it sort of sparked this situation where, you know, you can do lots if you sort of put your mind and focus to it. Um, so going to university and, and pursuing a sort of academic career um, in my eyes was, was kind of like, it's important, but I never really wanted to be the best accountant in the world, nor did I think I actually had the skills to be that guy. Um, but what I did take from it was, actually, I can get a really good financial grounding and it can help me with whatever I do next. Mm. Um, but it was a, it's a strange one because I never really wanted to be employed. I, I'd done every single job under the sun, like growing up from washing windows to, you know, working in a cafe, working in a bar, running a restaurant floor, selling double glazed windows, did everything, right? Um, just because I needed to. And then after what? five years of doing that I was just kind of like man I've got to do something for myself um and I wanted that freedom so that was kind of like the motivation for probably starting my own business all right before we continue I want to take a second to talk about our sponsor I've always been saying that one of the best ways to learn about business is by working closely with a smart and successful entrepreneur and this might be your opportunity our sponsor is a company called judge me judge me is a Shopify product review plugin and they're the number one plugin on Shopify. They're literally, if you look at the Shopify app store, they're in the first spot. They're bootstrapped and they managed to outcompete other companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars by just being smarter and building a better product. They were started by PJ, who was also a guest on the Founders Lounge, episode 54, so I recommend you to check it out. They recently moved their headquarters to London and they're looking for smart people to join them. They're looking for product managers, engineers, and 
they're looking to fill other roles as well. So check out careers.judge.me and see if you find any role that you like and apply. So that's careers.judge.me. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, cool. Well, then talk about your first business. What was that? How did that start? Ah, uh, it's a good one. So <laughs> it was, um, so we started uh, back in 2000, probably like 2005, give or take. And when I came out of university, uh, it was kind of like when Facebook was sort of blowing up uh, on web. And I had this obsession with mobile phones. Um, so I always had like the late, uh, well, I basically had like the, from the first mobile phone of like maybe the Nokia era, the 3210s, you know, that sort of um, playing snake on your device. I sort of used to buy the latest phones that they were coming along. And I kind of realized that actually this was growing really, really fast. So I always wanted to do something on a mobile device. And then back then when we started people started paying for data. You could buy like bundles of data for like, I don't know, two pounds for a couple of meg. Um, but it wasn't a norm. It wasn't built into your plan or anything like that. Um, but more and more, I noticed that people were building like little Java apps or you could use WAP on your phone, mm -hmm. which is like mobile internet nowadays. Mm. So I was like, oh, we need to do something in this space. We should definitely do something in this space. Um, and we had a, a, a range of ideas. Um, all of them were kind of out there. It was wildly unsuccessful. I spent a lot of my family's money and they were not happy with me. Um, and, uh, and the business failed ultimately. But the idea, one of the best ideas that we had, but we didn't realize it at the time was we, we effectively, a friend of mine and, and myself, um, he's this great guy, still a friend of mine today, Ed Hope, um, we, we built this, uh, online estate agent. We didn't realize what it could become. It was kind of like the first iteration of what right move is today. And we grew up in like in, in my secondary school, we lived in, when I was at secondary school, we lived in a, a town called Bishop Stortford, which is a relatively affluent area now. Um, but it was like the, th I think at the time it was like the third fastest growing commuting town in the whole of Europe. Um, and when we, you, you sort of walk around the town, it's kind of small, but there's, there's a lot of people who live there. And I was like, where, where is everyone? And they were always either working in London or they were using Stansted Airport as a commuting spot to travel to Germany for the day or whatever it was. I was like, how do these people buy homes? So, because the estate agents are only open on a, well, at, back then they were only open on a weekday and they closed at six and most people leave before six in the morning and come back after six at night. So him and I, we got together, we built this uh, WAP site. Um, we managed to convince a local state agent to, um, to partner up with us, which is a separate funny story on how we did that. Um, and we launched this service called Street Finder. And what you would do is you would walk past the house and you'd see the billboard. And we managed to convince the, um, the estate agent to put a five digit uh, SMS shortcode on it. So you'd text the street name and to the short code and it will return every street on uh, every house on that street that is up for sale so you could easily compare them look at the photos you could register your interest um, and then every time a house came up for sale on that street it would send you a text message and say hey look oh, wow 
this new this new house on the market are you interested book a viewing um and and, and I, I thought that was like amazing it was like it was really exciting at the time like, that sounds pretty advanced for for like that time I think the idea, you know, we, we were, I think it sounds advanced, but, you know, with a lot of good ideas, really, you couple together bits of technology mm-hmm. that work together to, to create something good. Um, and, but we were so naive, like it was our first business. We had no idea how to market it. We had no idea how to distribute it. We expected too much of our partner that they obviously wanted to use it, but it was, it was not in their, they weren't ready to invest like dollars behind it to, to market it. But, um, so in the end, it, it ended up folding. Like we had, we ran out of money. We couldn't really do it and we ended up getting jobs. But I think that was the, the first time I sort of got a taste of, wow, this is pretty cool. We could create something mm. really nice here. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a great story. That is so cool though. And I love how you, did you see that kind of mobile trend, uh, starting did you did you assume that that was going to be a big wave coming you know you know i don't i'm not i don't claim to be the smartest guy in the world but um i think i did like i Mm. I looked at mobiles and where they were going and how quickly the technology was advancing and this was pre-iphone so it's Mm. like obviously before 2008 and i looked at it and, and i remember asking or saying to or making a statement to my friends i said I don't know why we pay for minutes or text messages, like buy a text message. I said, when you could buy Uh a data plan Uh and you can use the data to send like an instant messenger, like, because back then we had like ICO, um, I don't know what MSN, MSN messenger. I said, you could do the same thing on your device. And actually funny enough, there were a bunch of companies that ended up doing instant messenger apps. Like I think there was one called Fring and a couple of others. And I said, you should just pay your data and then you could just communicate for free, which mm. is basically what everybody does today. I, I still mm. don't really understand why mobile operators really exist in the guise that they do, because all you need is a data plan. Um, so yeah, I think um, I kind of did spot that trend early. What I didn't really do, because I was too naive and didn't know, I was too close-minded, was understand what the real huge opportunity and how to achieve it would be because mm-hmm. you kind of learn, learn those skills later as an entrepreneur like i think what real entrepreneurs are, are really good at doing is basically taking an idea knowing a little bit about it or being experts in the field there are a couple of different types of entrepreneur types but the ones that that i am is like i see a niche and then i figure out how to pull the bits and pieces together to basically execute on that idea. Um, and if you can do that, you can, you could grow something quite interesting. You can create a new life for yourself. So that's interesting. When you say about pulling the bits and pieces together, how do you approach that? What does that mean? Um, so it can be, I think first and foremost is kind of like knowledge and skills. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a developer. However, like I'm a relatively good product or technical brain, but I understand that actually, you know, if I came to coding something, I would just not have a clue or nowhere, nowhere to start. So, so when I say sort of pulling piece bits and pieces together, you need to find uh, like-minded people who believe in your vision and, um, and, and include them in the journey try and bring them on board. Um, 
share it with them, uh, remunerate them, mm. and help get them to help you to to deliver not only like your the beginnings of your vision but help them shape the vision um so that's just kind of like one aspect but then there's mm. other things like it could be tooling it could be um you know just having the right tools to, to make to make it easy to manage your project it could just be um pulling in consultants and um getting advice and do market research and you know i, I tend to not do like friends that ask my friends and family too much about like my own ideas because I think it it skews it a little bit. Mm. Um, but going out to strangers or going out to my mentors and and saying, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Mm. Getting mm. them to really challenge me on why I I think is a good idea or why they should believe it's a good idea. So you know, pulling the right resources together is like um, is really key to 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 doing anything. I think. Mm. Yeah, it's actually a topic that comes up quite often here on the podcast um, that I've observed a lot of successful entrepreneurs are good at is, I suppose, learning from the right people. And I think specifically when you're trying to achieve something, finding somebody who has done a sim the same or very similar thing before and, you know, reaching out to them and like, somehow getting access to them and just asking them, hey, how did you do that? Can, you know, can you teach me? Can you guide me? Can you share your resources with me or whatever it might be. Um, and that's, I think, one of the big hacks that it's kind of like a shortcut, right? Because you can either try Absolutely. to figure it all out on your own, or you can find somebody who's done that before and see if they can help you, right? I, I think, think that's, more, the, that's the smart thing, right? So to, if you want to go 100 miles an hour, or you want to jump straight into it, you want to go to someone who's done it before mm. and ask them like, hey, one, what do you think of this? Have you done it before? And they might be able to immediately tell you, I've tried that. It's really hard. It's not a good idea. These are all the pitfalls. Or yes, it's a great opportunity, but this was the one challenge that I got stuck on. So, and if you can figure out how to solve that problem, mm. then you're onto a winner. But it's like trying to, I think that's what a lot of, that's what I did as a kid. It's like, Smart people always find like shortcuts on how to get from A to B, like really, really quickly. I mean, there's that famous like Bill Gates saying, isn't it? Which is like, if you want something done fast, you know, hire a lazy person, like, because mm. <laughs> they'll find the quickest and the smartest way of doing it. Um, and that's always stuck in my mind, which is probably why I always say like, uh, I'm not an expert in any specific field, but I try and, I think one of your, actually your previous guests said like being above average in mm. other skills in lots of skills actually pulls together and actually can make you a very very sort of sharp knife mm -hmm. um, by, by having about being above average in lots of areas which is probably where i'm at mm -hmm. i see when it comes to finding people or reaching out to people for advice or even mentors you mentioned the word mentor before right how do you typically approach that so it's one thing that i'm Try, well, I guess I'm reasonably good at it, but I'm also trying to get better at it. And whenever I'm, you know, when I'm starting something new or we have a new problem that needs to be solved and I'm trying to figure out, okay, where can I find somebody who solved that problem before? And then I try to find people who built a similar product before, who started <clears> a similar <throat> business before. Um, my initial my initial approach is usually I try to look through my existing network. I think of my friends. I'm like, can I, 
can any of my friends help me? If not, can any of my friends introduce me to someone who has done that before? And that sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. And then my next step is usually I just try to find similar businesses, similar products, find the, the founders or whoever's responsible for that, message them. And then, you know, sometimes you get a response, sometimes you don't. With, with cold emailing, it's always like, I don't know, 10 to 20% response rate. Mm-hmm. Um, curious how you approach that. You know, I think when it comes to these types of challenges, it's, you know, you know, I started off very much like if I needed something, I would uh, find people and then I'd reach out to them cold. But what I realized over time is you got to, you got to give before you get. Mm-hmm. So it's all about nurturing mm-hmm. relationships. So, mm-hmm. you know, I had a really good, one of my old investors, um, Oliver Ripley, he was really, really well connected. He was a really, really nice guy and he helped me out so much and understanding sort of the startup landscape. One of the things that he was extremely good at was nurturing relationships with lots of people and he would never really ask anything of them. Um, He would try and give as much as possible. But when the time came that he actually did a favor, he had a wide network of people that he potentially could ask for, ask from or or get mm-hmm. advice from. Yeah. So I try and sort of do that. I'm not very good at it, but to be honest, I'm not a massive networker, especially in the COVID world. I work from home right now, so it's a little tricky, but having lots of sort of, well, having, for me, having a small network of um, good friends yeah. um, really helps because I can't manage hundreds of relationships. I can manage five, yeah. maybe. Yeah. So, so I start there and I try and help them out as much as possible. And then in return, when I need to, when I need something that's beyond my network, then I can go to them and ask them for advice and they're probably more willing to help me. Um, in terms of, in terms of other things, like in terms of getting, um, sort of mentors or finding mentors um it's the same like actually the one of the guys who i who i count as a mentor is also a very good friend of mine um he's run a few startups and he's also um he's he's been like an entrepreneur um he works for the department of trade and he does lots of sort of um sort of angel investing um he was introduced to me as a consultant um, and actually he, he gets so much enjoyment. I love watching him work cause he gets so much enjoyment out of like not consulting for people. Cause when you say consulting, you think there's an exchange of money. He just comes in, he sits uh-huh. down, sits down with, uh, lots of startups. He talks to them, he challenges on their ideas. He'll come and run workshops on, you know, marketing best, best practice practices or how to raise money or all these sorts of things he gives it all for free. And I'm like, dude, how, how do you do this with all your time? He goes, I just have so much enjoyment out of it. Mm. And I'm like, that is the way to create like really valuable connections with people. Um, uh, so, so I try and do that as much as I can. I have a couple of people that I, I mentor right now and you know, I do it out of the joy of it, not, not for anything else. Mm-hmm. So nurturing the relationships, I think, is the best way. Or giving to nurture relationships is the best way to then get in in the long run. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's a good point. It's I think you need to figure out for yourself what is the right way for you to nurture relationships. Because mm -hmm. what you were saying right now uh, about your friend, I think that's extremely valuable. But it's also something that I personally could never do. I'm really I'm very much not the kind of person who can come into a business and just see immediately like, oh, I think you could do this. I think you can do that. I think you, like I'm very bad at um, giving advice kind of ad hoc. Uh, whenever, when I'm working on something, even when we're like brainstorming ideas, I'm like, dude, I need to go out for a walk or take a shower or just like sleep on it. And tomorrow I'm going to have some ideas. So I'm not very good at, you know, coming into a room and just giving, I can share my experience on the same thing. Absolutely. Right. Something that I've thought about in the past can definitely do that. Um, but I'm pretty bad at answering questions or kind of brainstorming on the spot. But maybe I can come with an idea tomorrow, right? There's a uh, what's this guy who started uh, Derek Sievers. He he's famous for being like a, a slow thinker. He calls it. Hmm. So he's like, and he started a pretty like C baby. I think he sold it for like thirty million dollars or so. So it was a pretty successful business. And uh, I think when I read about him, it made me feel better about that because I always felt like, oh, I need to like think on the spot. I need to be you know have ideas immediately. And then he wrote about it at some point. He was like, I never have ideas immediately. I always like, I have a problem. And then it's kind of at the back of my mind for a day or two or three. And then after mm. a few days, then I have the solution. If you ask me for an idea, if you ask me for, a, for an advice, I cannot give you an advice on the spot. Like send me an email, tell me about the problem. And then I'll get back to you <laughs> in a few days with, yeah. with what the solution is. Uh, personally, I function more like that. So, um, but yeah, I guess my point was, you need to figure out for yourself what is a good way of um, giving back or building those relationships and uh, nurturing those relationships, right? Absolutely. But I think what you just described in terms of like slow thinking is is really what a lot of good sort of entrepreneurs do. I, I, I am, if you think, if you think about it like a natural relationship, like a, a man and a woman, like it's, it's quite, and I'm going to generalize a little bit here. So don't, nobody shoot me down, but, um, I'm terrible. Like if there's, if I come in and I, and there's, my wife says to me, oh, there's a problem or there's, she's unhappy about something. Mm -hmm. I can imme I immediately like listen and then go for a solution. Mm -hmm. That's what most people do. But actually what I've been trying to do, uh, much more, which I've been carrying across from, from my professional life is being more of an active listener. So hearing people, mm -hmm. letting everybody else speak before you give your own opinion. Um, and sometimes you don't have solutions. You just need to hear and dwell and contemplate because, and, and I think, you know, I'm very much like you. Many people say I'm an extrovert, but the reality of it is probably I'm an introvert. So I have to dwell on certain things before I can, and, and, and take into account, um, all of the outcomes before I can give a rational potential solution. So when I say give to people, I don't necessarily, I mean, just try and solve their problems like mm -hmm. immediately there and then that's kind of not really what I mean. I think what I mean is just giving your time, giving yeah. your own experience, which you, which you mentioned. Um, you know, I talked about uh, my friend who, who, who consults, but he, what he does is like, Hey, these are the techniques of marketing or how to roll. Yeah. It's yeah. not saying you need to raise money or you need to raise money in this yeah. way, but then, you know, smart people extrapolate the key points that are poignant to then their point of time need. 
Um, so yeah, no, I, I agree. Absolutely agree with you. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. So something I noticed that I've been doing more recently is I don't give the answer. I don't give the solution because I don't know what it is, but I give, I explain how I would approach solving it. Right. I was like, well, yeah. here's what I would probably research or here's who I would reach out to, or, you know, something along those lines, more like the, the approach or the process towards solving it, not actually solving it and giving the answer. And that's probably a better thing to do also, because right, you don't, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you, you teach a man to fish, you feed him Absolutely. for life. So it's kind of yeah. like, so totally you, you sort of help them, help them solve those problems. Okay. Um, we didn't even get past your first business yet. So <laughs> that was the first one that we talked about already probably like 15 minutes ago. And then what happened? Then you had a series of other businesses, right? After that. Yeah. So, um, if I jump to sort of my most successful, I guess, accomplishment. So back in 2013, I founded a business, um, with some friends. It was actually a bit of an odd one. Cause I was, I had a career in digital marketing. Um, I was working for a, a, a LBI, which was like, um, a, te a tech, a marketing digital agency. And, um, and I was in charge of, uh, the mobile accelerator team, which was basically a group of individuals who designed and built mobile apps. And we built lots of apps for lots of blue chip companies, um, McDonald's, Lloyd bank, you name it. There was a, there was a bunch of apps that came out of our team. And, um, my friends, I got together with a couple of friends and they said, Hey, look, we should start a business. I said, what business should we start? We don't know. Okay, good. That's not a good start. So, <laughs> so he said, well, I've actually met this, this guy. He's, he wants to, he wants to develop an incubator. So basically develop mobile app ideas, throw them out to market, see which ones stick and then grow those ones and then kill the ones that don't get any traction. I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. We could definitely have the skills for that. So, so we came on board. It was very simple. They immediately threw in, you know, a seed round of 300,000. Uh, we split up the equity and, and off we went. So it was very low risk. We had no real idea. So from there we developed uh, a postcard app, which is about as simple as it gets. So you take a photo on your phone, you write a message, it turns it into a postcard. So picture on the front message on the back. You might pay one pound and it would actually print a physical postcard and ship it anywhere in the world. And we thought that was a great idea until we realized that we need to sell like a billion postcards to make any money. So we immediately sort of moved away from photo, uh, like a postcard app. We grew it into a sort of, um, printing app. So you could then print posters and picture frames and mugs and t-shirts and all sorts of stuff. But again, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't necessarily the best paid marketeer. So I didn't really know how to scale a directly, a, di a direct to consumer app. But what we developed was a print network. So we'd taken our little app, we built a service which connected to lots of different printers all over the world. And then we said, actually, that's where the real asset is we could offer this print network as an API to lots of different developers 
who take pictures. So back then we had like Hipstamatic, Instagram had come out, Pic Collage, there was tons of photography apps, they were booming. And between them they had like billions of users and we were like, surely these guys would want to print their photos. Because back then like taking photos was kind of like an art and mm -hmm. before all of this sort of, you know, selfies and food photos sort of becoming a trend. And um, and we did that. So we, so we we launched our service as an API and as an SDK. We started building out a more robust global print network. And we launched a company called Kite, which basically was we connected people who wanted to print with people who can print. And the concept was if you are a company based in the UK and let's say one of your customers wanted to print a T-shirt and they live in San Francisco, they would place an order, the order would come to us, we'd route the order to the closest print manufacturer, which could be in the Bay Area or California somewhere. It would be printed locally, shipped locally. So the idea was, you know, we wanted it to be like greener, cheaper, faster, right? So it was low carbon footprint because we're not shipping it from the UK all the way to the US. It was cheaper for the user because they're not paying like high shipping rates. And it was much faster, which meant, you know, the customer was delighted. They're more inclined to buy again and repeat purchase. And then we released that API. We turned it into effectively uh, a print platform. We started developing client side applications. So they were like mobile apps, there were web interfaces. They were like, um, you could place orders manually. And, um, and we ended up selling that business to Canon back in 2017. All right. Well, yeah. Congratulations. So that was the, you said that was the big success. Mm. Um, all right. Was that, um, so that evolved from the mobile app incubator, right? Was that all financed by the revenue that you made with mobile apps and then eventually the, the one postcard app, or did you raise any more funding for it? Yeah, so we had a bit of a weird setup. So because our investor was already a partner, in the business. We never really called him an investor, but we was, he was more of a partner. So that they kept bankrolling us. And I think mm -hmm. by the time we had, so we'd like, we started in 2013, we sold in 2017, we'd only spent a million pounds maybe. Mm -hmm. So we raised the million pounds from our partners. Mm -hmm. So we were, so we were pretty, we were very lean, very lean. And then um, by the time it was sort of, being successful, we were sort of bankrolling ourselves. Um, but you know, we weren't doing crazy amounts of revenue at the time when we sold. But the acquisition was a, a really fantastic deal when you start looking at how you the unit economics of EV valuations, we got a really fantastic deal. So, um, so the offer was too good to turn down. Can we talk anything about the numbers? Uh, I can't give you the exact number, but um, it was tens of millions. Very nice. Very nice. And then you stayed with the company for a little while, right? Uh, after the acquisition. Yeah. So like all, well, like a lot of sort of exits, you end up having earnouts and depends how the deal yeah. structure works. So we had uh, a three year earnout mm -hmm. and um, halfway through the earnout, um, the Canon, there was a change of strategy and 
I didn't believe that our vision aligned anymore. So there was an opportunity to exit uh, that business. Um, but me being me, I wanted to make sure that the legacy sort of survived. So I managed mm -hmm. to extract Kite as a business out of Canon. And we ended up selling it to another business. Oh, what? Okay. Yeah. So, That's interesting. So the same business we had, we sold it twice in the space of two years. <laughs> and and uh, and it sort of lives on now and under an, uh, a new guise. So I sold it to um, a friend of mine who was the CEO of another um, competitive print-on-demand business called Prodigy. And um, we managed to combine our technology um, with his own technology and his own print fulfillment network to sort of um, uh. supercharge the authoring. And, uh, and, you know, I stayed on there as a consultant for a while, um, but that business definitely does not need two CEOs. So James and the team there have, uh, have been really fantastic and they've taken it, you know, far beyond what I could have done. Uh -huh. Okay, okay, I see, I understand. And so, if I understand correctly, so this other company acquired that. So basically, what Canon was essentially going to kill it or kill parts of it. And then you, or, or in some way, they didn't need the business or the brand anymore, right? So you were able to convince them to sell it. As, so Canon then sold it to, under your leadership, sold it to this other uh, prodigy. That's correct. Business, yeah. Right? So, yeah. The strategy changed. It was a bit of an odd one because, you know, in Japanese businesses, um, they, uh, they move at a certain pace. So it was kind of when we started looking at the business and we noticed that they wanted to sort of um, very much focus on their core product lines. Digital was a very much an R&D section. Excuse me. So <clears throat> when we realized that actually they were going to be investing less in digital services. Um, the writing was kind of on the wall. So it was kind of, from my point of view, it was, hey, um, if you don't want to invest heavily here, which was kind of like part and parcel of joining the group, then maybe we should probably part ways amicably. Mm -hmm. So there was a win-win situation for everybody, which was, nice. which was great. Okay. Okay. Very cool. I think I understand then how that worked. Um, okay. And then, then next, so now, well, now you're working on something different again, right? So that's that you sold that that was a few years ago and now you're involved in a few other things. Yeah. So, um, one of my clients back in the day of kite, uh, his name's Alan Chan. He, he founded a business called joy. And Joy is uh, a memories platform. So basically, he developed a, a piece of, it's like a digital uh, smart frame. And uh, it comes with its own sort of companion apps. And the idea is that, you know, digital smart frames are like really difficult to use. Um, you have to plug in USBs and notoriously cheap, and the software is typically rubbish. So um, his idea was that he wanted it to, create the ultimate sort of storytelling book, but like as a smart frame. So for something that's tactile, you could pick up, you can scroll through it like a photo book. But the idea being all of your photos are taken on your handheld mobile device, right? Um, so if over a trillion photos a year are taken on an iPhone, 
then the idea is we should go to the source on how do you curate and store your most precious moments. So we designed some software, so we built some mobile apps. Within the mobile app, you can choose, you can curate your photos, you can create albums, you can create private groups, you can share certain photos with different types of people, whether it be your family or your friends. And then they immediately beam directly to the smart frame. So, mm -hmm. so it was a really seamless way of being able to um, cherish your memories. Um, so we, he'd been developing that concept for a couple of years. And actually, more recently, what we've done is we've expanded the vision to to be effectively, our vision is to be like the most trusted parent tech company in the world. And the idea is like, we want to celebrate and support parents um, at key essential moments of their lives and by providing them nice services, etc. Um, it's a really interesting poignant point where, you know, when you have your first baby as a parent, so a lot of the people that use our services, you know, 75% of them uh, are new parents and they've never been accountable or really have be responsible for another human being. Mm. And anyone who's had a kid, I, I don't know if you have children, I've got three. Not yet. Um, not yet. Um, it, you, you, you go into being a parent and you don't know lots of things, right? So you sort of, mm. you can read all the books, you can go to NCT classes, but the reality of it is every child is different. The experience is different. So what we did is we realized that actually joy and the memories platform, the, the most effective or the most, um, the highest conversion rate was when we targeted new parents. So we ended up acquiring a couple of businesses. So one in the UK, one in the U S which takes newborn photography. Uh -huh. And at that point we realized that we could not only build a business through taking newborn photography, but then we can also deliver the memories through joy. So through the software, um, so people get their photos directly on their mobiles from the portrait sessions that they take with us. Um, and then we're growing that out into be a parenting club. So providing everything you need to know, whether it be guides, expert advice, um, it could be, you know, helping, helping, biz, uh, helping parents understand, you know, what to expect. Um, it can be, um, storing their most precious memories. It could be connecting them with brands and offers, um, to help them in their day-to-day -day lives, which is obviously more apt today, given sort of cost of living crisis and people needing, you know, help in every which way they, they can get it and, you know, purchasing everything you need for a new family is a very expensive business. So, mm. you know, we want to support parents as much as we can in that state. It's interesting. I, I thought about parents. Um, my friend and I, we thought about starting a parenting newsletter, not that we know anything. So obviously we wouldn't probably be writing it because we don't know anything about parenting because neither of us is a parent. But we thought it could be a good business because it's, as you said, it's, you're entering this unknown territory and you got a lot to learn and there are a lot, there's a lot of confusion and unknowns. And I think it's, it seems like it's fairly easy to target parents. 
because you know, online, you kind of know who they are. Their behavior is very specific. So online platforms like from Google to Facebook and so on, they, you know, they know who is a parent or who is about to become a parent. And it seems like now you, pro you know much more about this than I do, right? So I'm just, <laughs> those are all just our assumptions. Uh, it seems like you can, if you know which stage they're at, so, you know, did they have a baby or they're just pregnant or you can kind of know what sort of products you can offer to them depending on you know, how old is the baby, what's, what are their needs at any given time. So yeah. it seemed like, and yeah, as you said, it's something that it costs quite a bit of money and you know that you'll have to invest in it, right? It's like you can't just, you just have to buy the things that you need for your baby and you, I think you, you, you're very much willing to invest in it because it's an important thing. Um, so in theory, it seemed like a great target audience and that's the way how we looked at it. Uh, but we had other things to do, so we never actually ended up uh, doing it. But that was kind of our thinking around it. <laughs> I, th I think uh, things really astute and it's, and it's absolutely spot on. And um, one of the businesses that we acquired in the UK was called Bounty. Um, and Bounty have been around since 1959. So they're a historical legacy business. Um, and they have developed amazing sort of an amazing brand, um, very loyal consumers, and they've um, possibly got the number one pregnancy app in the whole of the UK. So we have hundreds of thousands monthly active users using our app every day or every month. Um, and that's exactly what we do. So we understand mm. the user, user behavior, we deliver content on a timely basis, we connect them mm. with brands at the right point. Um, and that's and that's what our business model is. But it's all about not only being prenatal, but also parenting is very much what happens after nine months, you know, having mm. your baby and then going on. Because especially nowadays, like um, you never stop being a parent really, right? So, mm. so what we're looking at is how do we expand um, our relationship with our parents mm -hmm. beyond just the sort of prenatal state beyond and then going into postnatal because you know if we target anywhere from zero to 10 years old you know that just times our effectively our lifetime value by ten, essentially 10 right yeah so yeah. or if not more so yeah. that's the market we're in we're looking at being that parenting platform very cool and so and that's you you're in the uk but your business partner is in the us so you're a little bit remote as a business yeah well we own uh businesses in the us as well so joy is uh -huh. from san francisco we just uh -huh. bought a business which is effectively based out in houston texas uh -huh. we have bounty here um which is obviously in the uk and the two effectively he, alan's great like he treats me like a pseudo co-founder so I like, I like to think myself as, as a founder um the two of us are split between the two countries so we can sort of manage both mm -hmm. um, at the same time very cool. And that obviously that's, that's working well. And that's probably your plan now for the foreseeable future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I'm thinking where should we go from, from here? Um, is how, so, so you're, you're now you're sort of an, it's like an, a parent company, right? You own several different businesses under like several different brands. 
do you, do you generally just manage or treat those as completely separate brands? So yeah, that, that's maybe an interesting topic because your, your business has been acquired and now you're acquiring other businesses and I've seen acquisitions go extremely well and I've seen acquisitions go terribly wrong, right? Hmm. Um, sometimes, I think sometimes somebody acquires a business and they don't, they're not necessarily very familiar with that type of business and they don't know how to manage it. So I've, I've seen my friends' companies, you know, they got acquired, they left the business and then their acquired business essentially failed because the acquirer didn't know how to manage it well. Mm. Um, and then in other cases, obviously it's a, it's a major success, right? That those are usually the ones that we see in the news and that, um, are very, uh, end up being very good, very successful acquisitions. Um, so maybe I think that's an interesting question and uh, a question that not many people can actually talk about because they're, they're not, well, or at least in my network and among my friends, there are not so many people who acquire other businesses. So hmm. maybe that's something you can talk about a little bit if you want, um, you know, how you approach acquisitions and then how do you actually treat those businesses? Do they stay as completely independent or do you sort of merge certain things, share resources or you completely have completely separate resources or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I have, extensive knowledge in terms of M&A, but, um, but we're living for it right now. So we're getting experience every day. So I think it's very much like, how do we approach it? It's very much what we said earlier about nurturing relationships. Um, so, you know, when we start looking at where the opportunities are for our business and sort of realizing the vision and, and defining what we, what our next step is. You always do like a effectively like a, a competitor analysis, or you look at different avenues and you have to strategize around what's your um, distribution channel going to look like? Mm. How do you reduce the price of your CAC? How do you increase your average order value? Where is your market? What is the best place to focus in? Once you've done all that sort of work, it suddenly becomes obvious where you want to sort of focus, especially if you're sort of going with an M&A approach. Not many companies do like an M&A approach, um, but because I, I think it's a little bit out of lack of experience and naivety. So it's becoming a bit more prominent now when I talk about sort of different types of strategies in terms of M&A. But um, when you're a startup founder, the, I think immediately what happens is you you want to find a problem that you need to solve, that people want to solve, and you want to find it at scale. And then you end up trying to identify product market fit. Once you've got product market fit, you scale your business. And then ultimately you're thinking, well, what's the 10-year plan here? Is it, you know, do you want to keep growing it? Is it, you know, is it going to be a lifestyle business? Is it going to be like something that's your life work? Is it going to IPO? Is it going to exit? Are you going to merge? Like what, what are you going to do with it? Um, but only really, I think, but because of most, not most, but like new startup founders, that's kind of like the well-trodden documented path that you'd probably read about in TechCrunch or whatever, whatever mm. it is, Hacker News. They don't necessarily read about buying other businesses to help yourself get bigger or grow. Yeah. It's kind of like a step function change for a more of a sophisticated, more mature business or someone who's been like a serial founder. 
or an entrepreneur. So, you know, Alan, he, he's had his own businesses. He sold his last business to Yahoo. Um, so he's been around for a while, um, very smart guy. Um, and we've been, what you'll notice over the last couple of years, there's been a trend of what they call like roll-up strategies. So I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's yeah. basically buying up lots of companies to sort of, um, in the same space to sort of grow not only your distribution network, but also your revenues. And as you grow your revenues, like, um, you become a stronger, more efficient entity and you get economies of scale. So there's a business out there called Thrasio and they, uh, buy up direct to consumer businesses. Uh, they buy up a lot of, I don't know, um, Amazon FBA stores, uh -huh. I think was what they did. And I think they're probably branching out into like Shopify stores and other direct to consumer brands. And I think if I'm not wrong, they were probably like the fastest company to achieve billionaire status or unicorn uh -huh. status. Mm -hmm. um, but if you go out there and start researching roll-ups, you'll probably see that more often. Now, that's not necessarily what we're doing, but we took a leaf out of their book and we was like, mm -hmm. actually, we can, we can grow our business by understanding the market and then looking at how to leverage um, a company's assets to not only um, provide an asset for our own business, but also by combining the two, you have a bigger multiple. So there's like mm -hmm. an exponential gain on it. Mm -hmm. um, because Bounty, for example, you know, legacy business, they've been doing things the same way for a while and had a very successful business, but they're not a technology business. And when you start laying technology on top of these types of business, you suddenly get something quite magical. Mm -hmm. So, Going back to your question around, you know, how do you approach it? That's kind of like the theory behind it, but then it's very much nurturing those relationships of the CEOs and, and the boards and the chairmen of those businesses and, and, and sharing your vision with them. Um, and then over time, when the time is right, you have a relationship to sort of float ideas past them. Mm. And, and that's very much what we've done. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Uh, you know, not many people are actually able to provide some kind of insights into that. Um, I, one of my recent guests here, maybe three, four episodes ago was Ben Fletcher, and he's doing something a little bit similar with a company called The Mothership. And they're mm. doing essentially what you said, right? They're buying D2C uh, e-commerce brands. Yeah. Um, and is it predominantly, I think it's predominantly Shopify sites, is it? the mothership uh probably so i don't think they buy amazon brands so i right. think they only buy independent brands who are yeah either shopify i don't know if I, they only focus on shopify but um d2c independent e-commerce brands that's that's as much right. as i know and uh yeah i mean they, they have their own sort of strategy how they approach it and i think one of the the big part of their strategy is that they then run all those brands under one umbrella and they have a lot of shared resources and that's yeah. how they're more efficient, right? So instead of each brand having its own you know, design team and performance marketing team and so on, they actually have the combined teams, like in the teams under the umbrella of the mothership, and then they just have brand managers who work together with those those teams then to to get stuff done. So it's sort of, sort of like having some internal agencies almost you could say right and exactly, then yeah. individual brands get resources from those agencies depending on what they need and you know 
how well they're doing and what's the potential and so on. Yeah. And that's how they then optimize after the acquisition. And I think so, that's exactly what Thoracio is doing, you know, so having uh, this sort of internal agency mo uh, model where you mm -hmm. have like marketing and, and, and operations and, and so on, whether inventory mm -hmm. management or whatever it is, um, that makes total sense. And that's why by they can grow their revenues exponentially, but the resources required to operate them yeah. is much, much lower. They don't have to yeah. scale it at the same rate. Yeah, exactly. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But then it's interesting. On the other side, you got companies like Tiny, Tiny Capital. Do you know them? No, I don't. Run, run by Andrew Wilkinson. Um, incredibly successful. Andrew is super successful and their business is very successful. They're doing probably like, a, I mean, it's at least a billion dollar company at this point. If you, mm. But they also own 30, 40, maybe 50 different companies. They buy technology companies. Um, they like to call it, like, how do you say, like simple simple successful technology companies that's what they buy so it's usually a business that's doing i don't know a few million to maybe like tens up to a few hundreds of millions in revenue um and where the founder is sort of exhausted they don't want to or, or bored or whatever they don't want to run the business anymore so they sell it to tiny and then uh tiny typically just finds a new ceo and they keep running the company in pretty much a very similar manner as it was being run before um, but their strategy is completely different. So they never, they don't have any shared resources and they're very much against it. Their, uh, their philosophy is that every brand or every business under their umbrella has to have its own teams, its own management, its own, it just needs to run very, very independently. So they only, they barely even check their numbers. I think they used to do like monthly reports and then they switched to like quarterly reports and I don't know if they even do like quarterly reports now. Uh, so they only step in when there's a major problem or if they need to replace the CEO. Um, and then that's pretty much it. So very different strategy. Mm. Um, but also I suppose they, they do buy a variety of different brands. So it's, it's kind of different because they have, I know they have loads of job boards, but then they also have, I don't know, kind of like marketplaces and SaaS businesses and so, so it's much more sort of diversified, which probably makes it a little bit more difficult also to manage it all centrally, right? Because right. if if you have D2C commerce brands, sort of makes sense because it's all kind of the same thing, right? You know, it's not that different one business to the other. Mm. Well, I guess in their case, there's much more variety and like the needs that those companies need but have. But yeah, I think their philosophy is just that the incentives are more aligned. If you leave each individual company very, very independent and mm. they just each one runs on their own. But uh, interesting, well, Tiny is interesting and Andrew Wilkinson is very interesting. He also shares a lot about what they're doing online recently, a little bit less, but he used to like blog a lot and tweet and so on. So maybe uh, interesting for you to check out as well. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, cool. Okay. Let's do a few rapid fire questions. If you got another 10 minutes or so. Sure. Cool. All right. So if you're 20 years old again and you want to start a business, what do you do? Oh man, I think I'd have to go back to what I tried before and just stick it out a little bit longer. So if I took that estate agency app mm -hmm. and grew it into right move, you know, I don't know what the market cap is now. I, I'd imagine it was 
I don't know, maybe eight at its height, eight billion, and probably is probably worth like, I don't know, maybe half now, four billion. That's not a bad, that wouldn't be a bad first exit. <laughs> that's true that was a good one yeah i really like that idea i was in the end i was kind of surprised when he said well eventually it didn't work out which i mean obviously it happens right of course all the time mm. uh but I was like man that was a good idea um what was your or is your number one book or mentor or course or something that you would say that um sort of influenced your career or life the most or it could be several of them if you want. Yeah, you know, more recently, mainly probably because I have to manage a lot bigger teams now. Like I spend a lot of time on leadership and refining my own EQ. So I have to say probably I, I, I spent a lot of time sort of reading or watching or um, uh, Simon Sinek. I love Simon Sinek. I think he's great. Uh, I think he's just got a way of talking and understanding people. He, he follows a lot of sort of principles or values that I, I care about. Um, but other people in that sort of leadership sort of space, like Bill Campbell, obviously he's passed away now, but mm. Bill Campbell's fantastic. So the Trillion Dollar Coach, if you haven't read it, read yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so probably been spending more time on that. You know, I go through phases of different types of books or things I want to educate myself on. Um, but right now, leadership techniques mm -hmm. is kind of like the thing. All right. Do you also tend to get kind of obsessed with a certain topic and then you really dive into that? I wouldn't say I get overly obsessed. I'm, at, um, I'm kind of more of a kinesthetic learner. So I have to sort of do something uh -huh. um, to sort of really absorb it. I was never really a good like textbook st style studier, which is probably why I didn't do exceptionally well at university. Um, but yes, I do. So like right, right now I'm kind of like ob obsessed at looking at like the AI trend and looking at more, more, more specifically productivity. Mm. So right now, because, and it's, it, it really comes down to my personal needs at the time. So like I said, leadership styles or coaching is kind of the thing. The next thing is like, I have such little time, so I'm very much into like productivity hacks. So I've been looking at um, how AI can help me with my sort of day job. Um, uh, so, for example, there are a bunch of tools out there. They're not being endorsed by me in any way, but I use them, which is great. Um, but like um, a couple that I can talk about is like Jasper.ai, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's like... Um, uh, artificial, artificial intelligence for content writing. So you just pump in a bunch of like bullet points and it helps you like pad it out and give it context, which is fantastic. That's really useful. Um, I use things like otter.ai, which basically captures all of my, um, meetings and, 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 and conversations to help me bullet point and create summaries. Um, there's another tool out there, which I use for marketing, which is called like any word. So we are often, cause I'm a product guy and I'm spending lots of time sort of building, looking at landing pages, funnels, you know, apps. I'm often like, well, what copy should we use here? So we use certain types of copy, but it scans the copy and goes, you should use it. You should rephrase it to this. It will perform better. Um, so things, uh -oh. things like what that. What was this last one? Any word? A any word. Oh, any word. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so, so 
so those types of tools which help me with productivity so i think uh is interesting to me right now okay very cool interesting um what do you think separates okay founders from great founders eq definitely eq absolutely so you know i've met so many people that are good at their job but when it comes to it depends again it depends on what stage you're at like there's there's two things i think are, are, are massive eq so understanding really like being able to sort of stand in front of somebody or a team of people or give a speech and being able to um, ignite a passion, get them all behind like a common goal. Like that's prob If you can do that as a leader, so you can say, hey, this is our North Star, um, this is what we need to do and this is the reason why we need to do it and get everyone fired up to do it, you will achieve it so much faster. Um, other than other founders who were kind of like all over the place. Oh, should we try mm -hmm. this and do that? And then let's not do that now. Let's change this and do that. That is very difficult, a very difficult way, uh, way or trait to break. So being able to um, be laser focused and use your EQ to sort of um, bring out the best in people Mm. is um, very powerful if you've got lots of people, right? That's what I mean. It's very different if yeah. you're a founder and you only have two people, a couple of couple of founders, it's slightly different. Maybe it's grit when it comes to that, when it's at that level. Mm -hmm. It's like just the perseverance to get stuff done and keep going even when people are telling you it might not be working. Um, grit is the thing that probably got our kite, you know, to where it where it needed to be because at many mm -hmm. many times it was like mm, I'm not entirely sure whether this is going to work um but we were very much persevered and then we managed to smart people always manage to find a way mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very cool cool um is there anything else that you think we should talk about oh i don't know um what are the uh, what other questions I had a, a couple of sort of like I'm always working on sort of mini side hustles as well. Yeah, so let's talk about that. That's a great subject. I love that subject. I, I think it's I think it's definitely a trend more that you're seeing across like the influencers, like social media platforms. It's always it's I, def, I think there's more people wanting to bootstrap businesses now, like build a side hustle. Side mm -hmm. hustle is that buzzword for effectively bootstrapping, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And um, so I always have a couple of side hustles on the run, and and they're often to help um, my wife. So my wife's always talking to me and saying, "Hey, what should we do? Should we should we try this? Should we try that?" And and uh, she's, it made, I always describe her as someone who um, is probably a more successful entrepreneur than I am, but it's like in secret. She's, uh, she's, we got three kids and, uh, she, um, looks after those. She's a, so she's a stay at home mom, but she has two businesses, which I've helped her with. She runs like a, an Etsy store, print on demand Etsy store, funny enough, uh -huh. using, <laughs> using kite or prodigy. And, uh, and that's pretty successful, you know, it does a good, um, big six figure sum a year. Um, and that's fantastic when you start thinking about it probably only takes like two or three hours a week. Mm. Um, which is fantastic, but her most successful idea, which I've managed to help bring to life is this app called Elfcam. So the concept of the app is, um, 
it's a Christmas app, it's a seasonal app. So people download it around Christmas and it uses AR technology and you can scan a room basically and then you can plot a route and this little Christmas elf pops up and it sort of runs around and you can get it to animate it, you can dance, um, you can do all sorts of things. Drops little Easter eggs and chocolate coins and candy canes and you film it and then the idea is that you show it to your children in the morning and it sort of brings Christmas to life. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought this was a terrible idea when, when she first told me. And she, it took her maybe four years to convince me to help her build it. So we built it two years ago, and it was by far the most popular mobile. Well, I've never seen a mobile app um, grow so fast. So oh, wow. in three weeks over Christmas, she managed to get a quarter of a million installs. Oh, wow. In three weeks. It knocked, like, I think it knocked BBC, Sky, um, <laughs> like Amazon Prime, all out of the top 10 of yeah. uh, the entertainment list in the App Store. And it was only sort of second to, like, Netflix and TikTok or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and she's been, and that's been fantastic. Like, as a sort of little side business, that has been a real sort of learner. And it's the first thing that I've ever built where I've gone, wow, that has, that really like nailed product market fit, like mm. right bullseye straight in one go. Um, and in the second year it did like 350,000 installs. So, really? um, yeah, so it just grew so crazy. So that, that, those are the two sort of exciting side hustles that we sort of, you know, do in our spare time. And, um, and it's nice cause it's like something that she and I can do together. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that, that that keeps me that keeps me going. That's cool. That's nice, and it's also it's a bit of a learning experience, I suppose. And just a new, I mean, sometimes who knows, right? Sometimes you start with side hustle, and then it evolves into something much bigger. Sometimes there's potential for that, or um, yeah, if nothing else, just a learning experience and make some money as well. So, mm, absolutely, it's very cool. Nice. Well, I love that we touched on that as well. Um, Cool. Then I guess we can wrap up. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having and me. It's been really good. Good luck. Good luck with with all the all your businesses and projects that you're working on. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for being a great host. And uh, yeah, I've been, I've enjoyed it. Nice. Well, thank you. Take care. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the content, please do me a favor and click the like button on YouTube or give us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Uh, leave a comment, subscribe if you want to hear more from us. Uh, that really helps also to get the podcast out there and that helps me get more interesting guests and create even more interesting content. So I really appreciate it if you do that. If you have any other comments, questions, feel free to message me. You can find me on Twitter. That's usually the best channel. Um, the link should be somewhere in the description and uh, yeah, check out my Twitter I try to tweet interesting stuff about similar content that we talk about on the podcast um, key insights from the podcast as well and just generally stuff that I learn and stuff that I do so see you, thanks